Behold now the behemoth which I, God, made. He eateth grass as an ox, his nose pierceth through snares. Behold, he drinketh up a river. Lo, now his strength is in his loins, and his force is in the navel of his belly. His bones are as strong pieces of brass, his bones are like bars of iron. Those words come from the Old Testament book of Job. It's a description of a terrifying creature, the behemoth, or as we would call it, a hippopotamus. Hippos are enormous semi-aquatic mammals. The largest known males have reached over 5,800 pounds. That's about the same weight as a Toyota Corolla, if that Corolla was holding Shaquille O'Neal, LeBron James, and Arnold Schwarzenegger, and a polar bear, and a black bear and a horse. Hippos feed almost exclusively on plants, and I say almost because hippos attack and kill about 500 people a year and will eat meat if plant life is scarce. In a simpler time, the American Congress came up with a curious idea, the introduction of hippos to the swamps of the United States. You're listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, Episode 70, The American Hippo Bill. Okay, Tyler, our get-to-know-you question today is, what is your favorite board game? Great, great question. And I feel like I have a lot of answers. Because I do come from a family that plays a lot of board games and card games. Mm -hmm. Very big gamers in our family. Um, It is not unusual for us to be at like Christmas or New Year's and sitting around the table playing games until literally like four o'clock or five o'clock in the morning. Wow. Not even exaggerating. Wow. So big, big fans of games. I would say out of all the games though, and I like a lot, but my favorite is going to be Clue. Oh, okay. Clue's great. Yeah, which I think has lost some love maybe in recent generations, but I still love it. I think it's a fun game. I think, um, you know, it depends a lot on um, the ability to deduce. And I love a game where you have to take notes. Mm. And my family always (laughs) makes fun of me because instead of using the paper that the game provides i always get like a full sheet of printer paper because i like to take very detailed (laughs) i see whenever uh, i think it's a great guess or a great um answer whenever i play clue i get so turned around because i think (laughs) i'm I'm like "Mm, did you see the way she uncrossed her legs when i asked (laughs) if it was she's nervous she must have the rope and i just i turn myself into into knots (laughs) doing that I love it. I love the chance to go for full Hercule Poirot. Poirot, yeah, for sure. Game. Yeah, for so sure. that's my um, The other thing that I so I, that I like about that answer is I, I think a good board game you've got to have the mixture of skill and then just luck. Dumb luck, right? Yeah. If it's too much on either end, you either get Candyland, which yeah. my daughter loves and is absolutely horrendous to play because it's just like. <laughs> Oh, roll the dice, roll it again. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then, or you get something like, and I actually enjoy playing chess, but it isn't super, it's not a very joyful experience because it's just like, this is pure, unadulterated, who knows how to do this better, you know? Yeah, chess has no, no luck at all, right? Zero. I mean, apart from the fact that you flip a coin to see who goes first, I guess. Yeah. But, but I mean, other than that, there's still... no... Yeah, there's no random elements at all. Yeah. And so so that's and I, I, like I think the that the the um ability to go first in chess is not what will win you the game. Yeah. Because if you're not... if you're good enough, you can get past that. Exactly. And and that's just one opening slight advantage somebody might have, but other than right. that, yeah. So okay, great answer. Um my answer. So, uh, my wife's family is way more like your family. What you've described, they have. They own so many games. Everybody instantly knows the rules. So, like, we'll get together for New Year's, and they're like, "We're gonna play Carcassonne," and everyone's just like, "Cool." 
I know exactly how that game works. And, and I'm like, so pretend like you didn't know what Carcassonne was and you had to explain all of that to me very slowly, you know? Is that the real name of a game or did you just make that up? No, no, no. There's a game called Carcassonne that her family likes. Um, Carcassonne. I'm picturing, I'm picturing like Carcass Zone. No, it's C-A-R-C-A-Z-O-N-N-E, Carcassonne, something like that. All right. It's a fun game. Um, But that is not really how my family is at all. We have basically one game that we really like, and that's it. And the game that we really like is a card game called Rook. Have you ever heard of Rook? Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. I feel like everyone in our parents' generation played that. Yeah, I think it was a very popular kind of mid-century game. Um, it's been around since like the 20s, I think. At the uh, um, oh, I didn't know it was that old. Yeah, it's at least that old. I have a I have a deck of cards from the 20s, a uh, rook set of um, cards from the 20s. Wow. Okay. And um, it's a it's a good game of luck and skill because your cards. It's a card game, so you get your random cards, but then you've got to know what to do with them. So it's a great, great game. Um, my family plays sort of an altered version of the rules. If you read the official rules, um, we don't play by those, so it's not quite as fun. We play very similar, but with a few important changes. Anyway, so Rook is a big one. We love our Rook and our family. And then the other one that I'll say that um, I learned from my wife's family that I have really come to love is a game called Dominion. Have you played Dominion? Oh, I've heard of it. I've never played it, though. Dominion is great. It's um, it's sort of one of those games that you look at and it's like it's set in sort of some vaguely medieval time and there's lots of like, oh, but don't forget your thunder tokens, you know, <laughs> yeah. which I don't I usually don't love. It's like this is so complicated that I can't follow or it's just, it takes so much time to learn. But Dominion's actually fairly straightforward. And it's just um, <clears throat> the thing that I like is you're doing your own thing the whole game. Uh, and then at the end it's like okay who got the most gold coins or whatever um and so it's a good conversation game because it's not like like clue you're not going to be having outside conversation no right yeah you couldn't um and so i like it for that reason it's just like everybody's like okay i'm gonna buy a you know a a wizard card and i'm gonna play it now so that gets me this and it's it's kind of um it's kind of easygoing and it's good for conversation. And so those are probably my two favorite games to play Dominion and Rook. I do love that kind of game too, where it's kind of, um, it allows for easy chit chat. Mm-hmm. I think of Mario party that way yeah. where while everybody's rolling their own thing, then everyone else can kind of just hang out. Yeah. And a, and a board game that Dominion is similar to in that respect is like settlers of Catan. Oh uh, Yeah. It's like everyone's interacting, but you're kind of doing your own thing. You're like, oh, I need to get wheat or whatever. You know? Yeah, yeah. You're and watching so, your own sphere. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so I like that. Um, I'm also not huge on confrontation. I don't I really don't like like or I, I could do without really intense, like, I don't know, confrontational games. So I really like those where it's just like I'm just I'm just collecting wheat over here, hoping to build a bridge to, you know, Malar over or whatever. And uh, so. I like a good slow paced game. Rook's the same way. Great conversation game. You know what? I just realized I have to add another one. It's let's hear it. I I love this game even more than Clue, and it's new, so I forget about it. Right. But have you played Code Names? Oh, I love Code Names. I was gonna say I feel like you and I would both jam on Code Names. We're gonna have to play that next time. And I, I should because... say my family. Oh, go ahead. Well, just. It really appeals to a writer's sensibility, yes. don't yes. you think? <laughs> yes. I love yeah. the challenge of trying to take 10 different words on the table and make a transition between them. Yes, so much fun. And I should say my family's gotten a little better, especially now that like we have a bunch of grandkids. We do own a bunch of my, my grandparents ha- or my parents' house that's like the grandma and grandpa hangout house. There are several copies of... Um, of code names that we play when we all get together. I do like that. Yeah. Um, That's also a good game where people can kind of just hang out because there's kind of a lot of like planning time. Mm -hmm, A lot of thinking. Yeah. And that time people can come and go. It's also easy for people to like leave the table if they have to. For sure. That's a great answer. You and me need to play code names together sometime. Let's do it.
Okay, um, Tyler, I should probably admit that I did ask the board game question. It's a great question, but I did ask it on the outside chance that your answer was going to be hungry, hungry hippos. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. Until... <laughs> I should have seen it coming. Well, when I was perusing, game, right? it's yeah. uh-huh. when I was perusing the uh, the Wikipedia page under like other links or something, it was like or cultural references to hippopotamus. It was like there's a popular board game. <laughs> um but we are talking about the the noble hippopotamus today and to start us off before i throw it over to tyler to really dive us in pun intended um (laughs) i've got uh, some fast hippo facts i've been reading about hippos for like the last 10 days my family knows this because i've been texting them outrageous hippopotamus (laughs) facts and um but i'm going to just give you the highlights of the things that i learned that i like the most um so What's a hippo? Well, it's the third largest land mammal after a rhinoceros and an elephant. Mm. Um, Despite looking like a pig or any other kind of chubby little animals, it's most closely related to whales and dolphins, which is fascinating. Yeah. Um, And makes sense why it's aquatic and wouldn't be related to like, you know, a pig with hooves. Um, Its name means horse of the river and it's Greek. And I don't really think there's a lot of animals I'd compare it to, but not a horse. A horse has like mm. a graceful arching neck and a hippo is just like a barrel with a face on the front. So, <laughs> but sure, Greeks, whatever, horse of the river. Um, anciently, so, you know, pre-human or at least prehistoric, um, hippopotami were found as far north as England. That's insane. So there are there are fossilized hippos up in England and all across kind of central Europe. Pretty cool. Um, We know that humans have been eating hippos for at least 160,000 years because we have some very old hippo bones that have signs of having been hunted and, and processed by people with tools. Um, And so people have been munching on hippos for a long time. Um, You might know this, but it bears repeating. Hippos can open their mouths almost 180 degrees. No, Um, I did not know that. Yeah. That is upsetting. Yeah. The tissue in their mouth is, you know, connects in such a way that they're, you know, they could almost, almost like walk up to a wall and have top teeth and bottom all with their mouth completely open, 180 degrees. Very upsetting. Wild. Um, the plural, and I actually think I've already used the word hippopotami. The plural is technically should be hippopotamuses. And that's because it's Greek and not Latin. Not Latin. And it's the same with octopus. The plural of octopus should be octopuses, not octopi, because it's not Latin. It's Greek. Um, Although hippopotami is really fun to say, and it is is actually found commonly, like people use it. And so it is permitted, I guess, but it is the less favored. It's technically not as correct, but you can say hippopotami. It's pretty fun. Um, a name the name for a group of hippos they are sometimes called a pod but the other name for hippos or is a crash of hippos or a bloat of hippos both of which are just excellent and finally they can run at 19 miles per hour and trust me that's faster than you can run (laughs) they can't run that way for very long but they can reach 19 miles an hour an average human We're looking at the five to seven mile per hour sprint. Um, Usain Bolt, fastest man in the world by a long shot, um, has reached almost he's 27 point something miles per hour. But that's in like a hundred meter sprint for just a few, a very brief moment during his hundred meter sprint. He's at 28 and a hippo can hit 19. Um, So moral of the story, stay far, far away from hippos um, any chance you can. Um, I mentioned this in the intro, but it bears repeating. They can get to be over 5,000 pounds. And as I was reviewing that, the only word that came to my mind was unacceptable. That is an unacceptably large animal. (laughs) I do not accept that a hippo can be almost 6,000 pounds. Um, That is truly upsetting. Um, But that's the hippo. And we're going to talk today about how they almost came to um, America and why that was actually kind of a really great idea. And a lot of people were behind it. (laughs) 
So we're going to swerve away from the noble yet terrifying hippo just for a second to talk about a story of a flower that came to the United States and some wild consequences as a result of that flower. And the flower is called water hyacinth. And if you look up a picture of water hyacinth, you'll see a flower with leaves surrounded by water because it's an aquatic plant. It lives in the water and the flower has beautiful light purple petals and it's surrounded by lush lily-shaped leaves. Very green, very shiny. It's very aesthetically pleasing. In this case, however, the appearances of the water hyacinth are deceiving because water hyacinth is one of the most problematic plants in existence. It's famous for being a weed-like invasive species, and it has earned itself the nickname the Blue Devil, and also the nickname the Terror of Bengal. And the flower actually doesn't come from Bengal. It comes from the Amazon rainforest, and that's the only location on the planet that natively exists very peaceably with the flower because the species and the rainforest evolved together, so the, the ecosystem was used to having it around. But it was eventually introduced to Bengal, the section of India. It might have become Bangladesh. If I'm, I don't actually know what Bengal is referring to there. <laughs> we should look that up. But it was introduced to Bengal purely on aesthetic grounds, because it's a pretty flower and they wanted to put it in the water. But they quickly learned that water hyacinth is a force to be reckoned with. It turns ecosystems completely upside down, and it can decimate the plant and sea life population of any body of water that it comes in contact with. So it's dangerous for a handful of reasons, actually. Number one is that the plant will steal a lot of oxygen from the water, and it makes it very difficult for any organisms in the water to breathe. And not only that, but it also covers the surface of the water because it spreads out quite widely. And when it does that, it blocks sunlight from anything living below it. And that will kill off any organisms that are living in the water. And it's been shown that it even prevents the photosynthesis of organisms as small as phytoplankton. And that's one of the foundational organisms of the aquatic food chain. Mm -hmm. So it really attacks the source of the, the ecosystem. When water hyacinth dies and decays, the plant that like falls into the water, the plant material, ends up polluting the water, and that can kill other plants that are coming behind it. And then to boot, it's also very sturdy, enough that it can block a waterway if a boat is trying to get through it. It can prevent a boat from traveling completely. Water hyacinth is really difficult to remove. <laughs> In order to do it, you either have to get in there with your hands and grab all of it, or you have to figure out some kind of big machine that can chop the plant, collect all of the material, and then dispose of the biomass because it's a lot of material that gets left behind. And when you're removing it, if you accidentally leave any piece of the plant behind, it can reproduce and start a new colony of water hyacinth wow. just because you left it in the water. I guess kind of like like the multi-headed hydra in that sense. It just it yeah. doesn't go away. But above everything else, what makes the water hyacinth truly horrifying is the fact that it is one of the fastest growing plants on Earth. And in only one day, water hyacinth can grow between 7 and 16 feet. Unacceptable. That is also unacceptable. <laughs> unacceptable. That is something out of one of the Predator movies, right? Like, <laughs> wow. That sounds like an alien organism that came to Earth to take over. <laughs> so, if something's growing 16 feet in a day, that's like a f several inches an hour. Oh, yeah. I mean, you could probably watch it grow. Yeah, I realistically, mean, right? Like a, you can it's look at it a, and see. Yeah, it's less than a foot an hour, but not much less than a foot. That's crazy. Too spooky. So, unfortunately, for the southern United States, water hyacinth was introduced to the U.S. to the waters of Florida and Louisiana in the year 1890, and when it took over, 
it totally blocked the St. John's River, which is the longest river in Florida. And I'm not very familiar with Florida geography, but that goes through Jacksonville and a number of the other cities in, in kind of North Florida. It's a crucial waterway for Florida's um, economy. And it's not really sure how it got to the US. There are a couple of theories, nothing's really confirmed. One theory is that it came by way of the World's Fair in New Orleans, which happened in 1884. And it was presumed that somebody brought it to the fair as an exhibit because it's this beautiful aquatic lily. It's something to look at. Another theory is a little bit more malicious. And that theory is that it was given away intentionally by Japanese ambassadors who came to that World's Fair. Ooh, said, I like oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> they That's said, exciting. Here's this beautiful water lily. And then, <laughs> you know, they rubbed their hands together. He, he, he. Afterwards, we gave them this terrible plant that's going to take over the entire country. Mm, I like that. That could be a one act play or something. Yes. <laughs> oh, that I would read that. Or yeah. see it. <laughs> um, another theory, not so exciting, but maybe realistic, is that they um, used to sell like grab bags of seeds. I think they even still do this. I think you mm -hmm. can go to Home Depot or wherever and get like summer flower mix or whatever. Yeah. And it has all kinds of different seeds. And it was confirmed actually that in New Jersey in 1884, there was a quote, catalog of rare water lilies and other choice aquatic plants. And it did have water hyacinth seeds in it. Mm. So that's a very likely... Um, case for where it came from and then there's also an anecdotal story that was published in some magazine at the time that mentioned a man going to columbia and he took the plant home with him like as a souvenir and he lived in new orleans and then within two years it had totally taken over new orleans wow but regardless of how it got there it was going to be a problem because these are coastal states they depend very much on their waterways for transportation as well as food. So it's going to be a problem that water hyacinth is taking over. And chemical control is kind of out of the question here. You can try to poison water hyacinth, but if you do that, you're just pumping poison into the water that people are drinking and also to the fish. Hmm. And physical control is also out of the question here because water hyacinth grows way too quickly. There's just yeah. too much to remove. Well, and especially in like in these years, in the 1890s, they didn't have speedboats. They didn't have, you know, they, we're talking about steam powered. Right. Boats. Yeah. So today, maybe if you had some crazy water tractor thing, but like, yeah, you're not getting very far with old wood. I mean, boats. based on the speed that we discussed, I don't think it's too far out of the question to say that the plant actually could grow faster than those boats. <laughs> Right, <laughs> or it's like the the Golden Gate Bridge. By the time they finish painting it, they have to start again to keep painting it. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, supposedly wow. by the time like they you know get the nice red across to the end, they just start again at the other side they and just start and redo again. it. And like if you had a stretch of river you were trying to clean out, yeah, you'd start at one end and kind of clean, 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 and then by the time you got to the end where you started would be overgrown again. If it's growing up to sixteen feet a day, crazy. Oh yeah. So you can't kill this thing chemically because it'll kill the water. You can't get rid of it physically. So the question was, how are you going to get rid of water hyacinth? So before we give the solution to that problem, which you might be able to guess what it is based on the name of this episode, <laughs> but there's another problem that America faces at this exact same time. And that is that we were suffering a nationwide meat shortage, which is something I don't think I'd ever heard of really talked about before in those terms, that America in the early part of the 20th century had a meat shortage. Yeah, um, no, never heard of that. And we're going to talk about Upton Sinclair in the jungle a little bit in a while. And I'd heard of that, but I had never thought about it in terms of like there wasn't enough meat for people. Uh -huh. So interesting, um, interesting how we get there. But to start off, one of the first things we need to understand is the, United, the population of the United States. 
um, how we arrive at a meat shortage. So in 1860, Civil War times, that's, you know, 50, 50 years before um, the period that we're kind of discussing, there were about 31 million people in the United States. Uh, if we fast forward 30 years to 1890, there were about 63 million, so more than double. And then another 30 years from 1890 to 1920, uh, the population went from 63 million to 106 million. Oh. And I stopped there because that's the period we're discussing, but that number continues to make bigger and bigger leaps as we go. And so America was just in a boom. Um, and one of the biggest reasons for this was immigration. So if we look at European immigration to the United States is like the history of the United States. Um, the peak year for European immigrants arriving, the most that ever arrived was 1907, which is like two years before the period that the exact year that we're going to be discussing. So, I mean, we are right in the middle of a massive wave of European immigrants. Um, when you, if you're trying to picture this time, if you've seen the movie Brooklyn, the 2015 movie Brooklyn, have you seen that, Tyler? Yes, I love that oh, movie. I absolutely loved it. I thought that it was a um, like almost a perfect movie. Just it was yeah. like an hour and a half long, and it told a beautiful story. I I just loved it, and almost anything with Cher Ronan in it, I will go see. I think she's Agreed. incredible. Yeah, and it's just a really great movie. Um, but it tells the story of this exact time period and just kind of how people be showing up in America and figuring it out, <laughs> um, you know, and specific, uh, specifically European um, immigrants. And so we have huge numbers of Irish people, Jewish people, Italians, Poles, everyone's coming in. And um, another sort of frame of reference, if you think about fast forward a little bit for, um, forward, to the movie The Godfather, which is set in like 1950s New York, you've got this kind of established Italian community and um, there's Irish communities that they talk about in that movie. And that all came about because a whole bunch of Irish people and a whole bunch of Italian people arrived at the turn of the century. And um, actually the, the main character in The Godfather, Vito Corleone, Don Corleone, he, in, according to the book, would have arrived in 1901. So this is kind of the world that we're setting up where there's suddenly Irish neighborhoods and Polish neighborhoods and Italian neighborhoods in, for instance, New York City. Mm. Um, all of that comes from this exact period um, because people were showing up and they kind of, you know, found each other and lived in little um, enclaves. And on that note, the Wikipedia page, New York City Ethnic Enclaves, is worth a read three times through it's so fascinating um because and new york city is just a great example this was happening all over in chicago and and everywhere but you know they literally landed in many cases in new york city because of ellis island and people just stayed and so you have a boatload you have three thousand men and women and children arrive from ireland now go into new york and figure it out and so it was kind of a wild time and this is where we get these ethnic enclaves. Some fun facts. Italian-Americans are the largest European ethnic group in New York City. Oh. Um, you know, if you want to attribute the famous pizza in New York City and like and and just, you know, when we think of a lot of New York City um, food and culture, the accent, all of that stuff, a lot of Italian-Americans um, is the result of that. Um, but also in, in terms of other enclaves. Um, another nugget that I found, 50,000 Jewish people immigrate to the U.S. today, every year. Oh, okay. That's a lot. And yeah. New York City has the highest population of Jewish people in a metropolitan area other than Tel Aviv. So outside oh, wow. of Israel, it's New York City. And so we've got these big communities. And, you know, if you've been to any major city, you've got here's Chinatown and here's Little Italy. You know, that's a very common thing. And it's because people were coming in and just settling in these huge cities. And so numbers like we've never seen before of people coming in and they're hungry. Of course they are. They need to eat. And so we have a huge population boom, largely due to immigration. Um, the next piece of this puzzle is our meat industry um, in the United States. And to put it 
simply it was struggling to keep up with the rate of immigration, with the rate of population rate rise. It just any any huge boom like that in immigration in, um, in population, the infrastructure and the, the systems that uh, um, that a nation has need to rise with it or there will be shortages. And in this case, the meat industry just didn't really rise. Um, and part of that was, yes, you need more animals, right? If if your population doubles in 30 years, then you need to probably raise double the animals. But part of the problem with that is you need a lot. Of, you need double the space, ostensibly, if you're going to raise double the animals. And, you know, in 1840, if you need 500 acres to go raise cattle, well, you can just go out west and steal it from some Native American people and call it yours. Um, but by 1890, 1900, the frontier is closed. The Frontier Act is over. And so we're kind of we've we ran into uh, the ocean on the other side and there's no more places to go grab up land. Mm. And so we start sort of having a land issue, or at least it's not nearly as um, open as it once was. And those places that are being used, you know, you think of your Montana's and your your whatever, these big kind of grasslands where huge um, droves of cattle are being raised. That's true. But they'd also been doing that now for 70, 80 years since, you know, large groups of cattle have been brought in by um, white settlers. And so the ground is starting to get overgrazed. And so that's another problem on top of this. Um, meat was scarce, therefore it was expensive. And at this time, it was also not super hygienic um, because of reasons you can imagine. There was things we just didn't understand. Um, standards were lower. There was, there was no food and drug administration to rate such things. Mm. And it was just harder to keep fresh. We didn't have refrigeration in the way that we do now. And now if you lived on a farm at this time, if it was 1910 and you lived on a farm in South Dakota, your meat supply is probably not super changed because, well, you've got your chickens and maybe you've got a cow or a pig and you can slaughter it and you're kind of self-sufficient. But urbanization is the other part of this. It is absolutely booming at this time. So if we go back and look at those years again, 1860, 90, and 1920, in 1860, the breakdown was 80% rural and 20% urban. So eight out of 10 Americans lived in the countryside, 20% lived in a, in a city. Mm. In 1890, so 30 years, it went to 6535 and it wasn't until 1920, so just after our story that we're talking about takes place, did we cross the tipping point to 4951. Um, Tyler, do you have any guess about what it is today? Um, this is not allowing for suburban, right? So it's just urban or rural? That's an excellent question. I do not know the exact parameters of that because that does make a big difference. I think if I had not, looked at the document that we're looking at right now i would have guessed like 50 percent live in cities and 25 or yeah 50 in cities 25 in suburbs and 25 rural well as you indicate i did i do have the answer on a google doc we're both looking <laughs> but um and it would depend on how you define it to some extent but the estimation right now is that only 20 percent of the united states is rural today so a complete reversal of 1860 where 20 wow. urban yeah um but so that's a big deal if you're in a city you can't just go out and buy a pig and start raising a pig you know to get the as a plan for this is how we'll get our meat in the winter um because cities you know that's just not how that works and cities are absolutely booming this was also exacerbated by southern african americans fleeing the south the horrors of jim crow to cities up north this is also how we get very large, vibrant African-American communities in the big cities that we kind of think of now as having that. So like Detroit and Chicago and New York. And this is later where like the Harlem Renaissance is going to come from. All of these black artists and thinkers and poets end up in New York City and they start making unbelievable art together. Um, but that was also happening. So you had, you know, one more reason for people to be showing up in the cities. Let, get me out of, get me out of the South and I'll go try and live in Ohio or in Michigan or whatever. Um, and a final note on this, I kind of already teased a little bit about um, the jungle by Upton Sinclair. This is a famous book about um, the meatpacking industry at this time. And it's a story of Lithuanian immigrants. So like I was just saying, that's, that's apropos for the moment. 
some European immigrants come over for a better life and they show up to an absolutely overcrowded Chicago full of immigrants, other Lithuanians and every other, um, you know, every other color under the sun. And the husband, kind of the main character of the story, gets a job in meatpacking. And it's a tragedy from there. Things just go horribly. Uh, the book was intended to be like a socialist manifesto to shock the country, mm. detailing like poor working conditions and the manipulation and awful things that happen to these people who come. And, you know, the there's no good labor unions and they're being taken advantage of, blah, 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 blah. But the big takeaway, fascinatingly, that America took from it was a message about meat. They were like, our meat is not safe. And these meat packing factories are disgusting. And um, that was sort of the takeaway. Um, Upton Sinclair commenting on that said um, very cleverly, I aimed at the public's heart and by accident, I hit it in the stomach. And so that's, if you've ever read the jungle, this that's kind of gives some good context to this. Like um, this is where we're at. And actually Upton Sinclair's the jungle caused great uproar um prominent politicians teddy roosevelt was like we we should do something although he didn't love the socialist aspect of it anyway that's where like the fda comes from we have like clean food and drug acts that are passed after this um but this is definitely the moment that we're living in and part of the um the hygiene and all of that um is um, refrigeration and transporting the meat. And we actually had improved quite a bit. And if you think about that, that's partially because of railroads. We had basically by 1910, we had perfected the railroad system. It was coast to coast. It was excellent. You could travel on it, you know, um, and get where you needed to go. And it actually, even at this time, included refrigerated meat cars. And the mm -hmm. way they did that was they would go in the wintertime and cut enormous sheets of ice from the Great Lakes. Wow. And then store them in sawdust in warehouses in cities where it was going to be hot in the summer. And throughout the summer and fall, they would put a huge block of ice in these train cars that were kind of specially insulated as best as they could be, fill it with meat, and you could drive it across the country and it would keep things at least relatively cool. Um, and so instead of now getting on your horse and having a cattle drive where you physically move living animals you know, to some other place or even loading those animals on a train car and taken to the city. Um, you can then you can process the meat first, which obviously is takes up way less space and is way you know lighter, easier to move on trains because you're only taking the part that needs to get where it's going, which is the, the processed meat. Um, and so we would kind of perfected that. What that did was gave America a taste for meat. Demand climbed with all the immigrants and population growth. And so it's sort of a perfect storm. We'd figured out how to get meat to everybody. Then the population boomed. The, the, the grazing land is getting worse. Um, and so we'd, we'd sort of shot ourselves in the foot on this one. And eventually there's just not enough cows and pigs and all of that stuff. Um, incidentally, America for quite a few years has been the leading nation in the world in meat consumption. <laughs> oh huh um we remain the leading country in the world by like a fairly healthy margin and oh, wow. um so when and it was the case at this time too i mean we we've always liked our meat it makes sense we have a a, a cattle culture we had the space for cattle and so it sort of became part of life interestingly argentina is also one of the highest meat consumption um, countries. And I, I would attribute that. I think that's pretty clearly attributable to the fact that they had the same thing. They have like a cowboy culture there. Um, and, you know, they're famous for kind of meat and their, um, their churrascaria and all that stuff. And so um, that's how we get a meat shortage in the United States, something I'd never heard of, but um, is afflicting everyone everywhere. Cause you know, people want to sit down and have their their ham at Easter or whatever. And it just, we just didn't have enough meat to supply the country. So there's a meat shortage happening in the United States at the same exact time that there is a water hyacinth invasion clogging up the waterways of the States near the Gulf of Mexico. And if you haven't already caught on, <laughs> there 
<laughs> was someone who came along, a senator or a congressman from Louisiana, who had an idea that could solve both problems. And his proposition was something called the American Hippo Bill. Yes. Um, so this man's name was Robert Broussard. He was um, from Louisiana. He proposed the bill, which was HR, so House Resolution 23261. Um, this was actually kind of bandied about for several years. This was kind of its first iteration, but this was a fairly popular idea. Um, and it was, let's introduce, or introduce hippopotamuses to the waterways of the southern United States. We will be able to clear out the plants, invasive species, and we will be able to harvest the meat from hippopotamuses. We can eat them. Um, now, I love a two-for-one solution. <laughs> great <laughs> um but you know this one almost sounds too good to be true and i think it kind of was and as you might also have noticed the last time you were in the great southern states uh there are not a lot of hippos out there roaming around um <laughs> and so the bill never came to fruition um the bill itself which the specific bill 23261 the idea never came to fruition the specific bill um at least in this iteration said Give us $250,000 of Congress's money and we will bring over some hippos and it'll solve everything. <laughs> and um, that did not, of course, come to pass. But we can go back and read some of the um, transcripts from when this was discussed in the House and buckle up, Tyler, because I've got a, just a couple quick doozies that I'm going to read to you. So this is March 24th, 1910. And um, this was on, um, discussed before the Committee on Agriculture. And the bill um, was called a bill to import wild and domestic animals to the United States. And so it's introduced. And then the committee's like, OK, Mr. Broussard, um, who's from Louisiana. So he's seen, like every American, he's seen the uh, meat shortage, but he's also seeing the water hyacinth problem. And he's like, all right, guys, I've got a great plan. And you know what? I'm not even going to explain this so much to you. I'm going to toss this over to like my expert witnesses that I brought who can answer all your questions. So he brings along a man named W.N. Irwin, um, who was part of the Bureau of Plant Industry in the Department of Agriculture. And he goes off on this speech and he's like, gentlemen, we have imported animals to these shores before and we should do it again like cattle were brought over um you know we brought all of these animals over and they've served us so well only the the noble american turkey is native here and so we should continue that um trend and bring over hippopotamuses um crazy side note he was not just for bringing in hippopotamuses this guy i kind of get the sense that broussard is like okay tell us about hippos and this guy's like oh i'll tell you about hippos and rhinos and <laughs> And water buffaloes and giraffes. We should bring them all. And so um, he starts saying, oh, there's these great um, animals that we can bring. Um, giraffe meat is supposed to be delicious. And he even talks about um, previous episode that we've discussed. He talks about the camels. He says, you know, we, we once tried to bring camels and it was a great idea. It didn't really take off, but it was an excellent idea. And, uh, you know, we should keep doing that and bring in all these animals. He, kept, he keeps saying that, like, Rhinos basically don't need any water. We can just let them go in Arizona, New Mexico, <laughs> and they'll just have fun and we can eat all of their definitely delicious meat. And um, he gets asked questions by the members of the committee and just listen to, to this 1910 walrus mustache answer. So uh, the chairman of the committee says, Mr. Irwin, first, in regard to the hippopotami, are they easily domesticated? And Mr. Irwin, you know, he grabs the lapels on his vest and he goes, well, the people who have handled them tell me they're very easily tamed and become very much attached to man, which is completely ridiculous. That I is don't not correct. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't oh, know boy. where he got that, if he knew it was wrong and just really wanted the idea to come to pass or if he was getting bad information. But they are not easily tamed and they will not become attached to man. Uh, they will eat a man if they need to. Yes. And so he goes on. Anyway, it's so fascinating to hear that. 
um, they're like, they grow to a great size, do they not? And he's like, oh, yes. What not that great for the meat production and all of this stuff? And um, that is what um, they will eat all kinds of water plants that cattle cannot get at. That is what first attracted my attention to these animals. I thought they would be very useful in the Florida and Louisiana streams to clear them out. And he has all of these crazy ideas um, that, you know, kind of go all over the place. But um, what do you think? Was this a... Is this as bad of an idea? It's easy to make fun of this idea, but it's also brilliant on a certain level, I feel like. It is kind of brilliant. I do have to respect the uh, elegance of noticing these two problems happening at the same time. Yeah. And then trying to design a solution <laughs> which would appease everything. Yeah. Um, and we also have to point out that they tried hard to get this to sell. They're, we're oh, looking yeah. at... Uh, article in the new york times published in 1910 and it says this is almost like an advertisement it says lake cow bacon made from the delicious <laughs> hyacinth fed hippopotamus of louisiana's lily fringed streams oh should sh soon be obtainable from southern packing houses and i'm going to read the first three words of that sentence again which are lake cow bacon <laughs> i mean it's more like a cow than a horse <laughs> but bacon of the lake cow they were really trying to sell us on this yeah. and i do have to wonder is it actually as good as bacon <laughs> they've got my wheels turning i mean if it's as good as bacon then i'm upset that it didn't pass because if we could just have <laughs> 5,000 pounds of bacon walking around. That's pretty great. I mean, that um, does sound nice. And it yeah. eats a weed, which is also very elegant. Yeah. But, it, it, well, it's sure. crazy to me that this bill got so close, it only <laughs> failed by one vote. Yeah. We almost did it. <laughs> well, and, and I get the sense that if we passed it, then that the Irwin guy would have been like, come on, just a few rhinos, just a few giraffes. Like, we'll let them go in Utah. They're going to love it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just wondered also, like, would it have been safe? You know, like, because hippos are very dangerous. And what if they had become an invasive species and, you know, taken over in the way of alligators in Florida? You know, oh. is it going to be the same kind of thing? Oh, for sure. I mean, I do think there's there's some irony there, some um, that like we have an invasive species. I know what we'll do. Let's bring an animal we have very little idea about to across the world to solve it. What could go wrong? Right. It's very um, hasty, right? It yeah, seems I mean, like it demands a little bit more thought than just immediately making a decision that would impact the whole ecosystem. Yeah. And it, and it suffers from all of the problems that the problem that you're trying to solve has, which is this is a an organism that doesn't belong here and who knows yeah. what it's going to do, you know? Exactly. And um, as your question, would it be safe? They talk in the transcript like, well, we would probably, we would want to like raise them on ranches, on hippo ranches. Oh like, yeah. Those classic hippo ranches. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the, the, the easy to construct hippopotamus proof <laughs> gate. Um, and they, they ask him that they're like, well, how would that work? And he's like, well, I've got, I've got ideas. We could, you know, we could do things. And they're like, but they need to live in the river. How do you put a cage in the river? And he's like, well, you could come up with some ways. <laughs> like, um, and so I don't think it would have been a great idea. And they were like, wouldn't it be dangerous? And he says, he's like, well, yeah, if they got out, it wouldn't be great because they would go trample crops and do all of this stuff. Um, an interesting tidbit that I feel like I, I had heard of, heard of, um, this hippo story I'm about to share very quickly. I hadn't heard of the American hippo bill, but I had heard of the the cocaine hippos, Pablo Escobar's hippos. Have you heard of those, Tyler? No, I haven't heard of this. Oh, it's a great story. Could be a whole episode. But um, Pablo Escobar, the drug trafficker king of um, Colombia in the 70s and 80s, um, was filthy rich. And as a filthy rich person does, he was like, bring me a hippo. I'd like several hippos in my personal zoo. So in Colombia, he had these hippos imported and then he was caught by the, the um, authorities and his like his menagerie kind of all went to pot. And he had a he introduced accidentally a breeding population of hippos to the rivers of Colombia. And they are now absolutely thriving. 
Wow. There huh. are too many of them. People are getting attacked and they're taking over stuff. And they're actually introducing uh, hippo birth control. They're going out and injecting the females oh with goodness. like, with like, um, I think they're injecting. Either way, they're giving them hormones that, you know, do what human birth control does, which is, inhibits their ability to get pregnant because they're like, we have too many hippos. <laughs> wow. Um, so would it have worked? My guess is that at least in terms of would they th- survive and thrive? I think the answer is absolutely yes. They would, they wouldn't have, you know, died out or, or not been suited to the climate. I think the climate would be basically perfect. I think mm-hmm. that the food supply was generous <laughs> and they would have been like Escobar's hippos and we probably would have a, a big problem today. So I'm, you know, I, I can't get over the fact that it is a kind of genius on some level, but clearly we should not have done this, right? I'm glad we didn't. I think so. <laughs> it just There's gotta be do. better. Yeah, I, I can easily picture the waters of the St. John's River just being <laughs> totally taken over by hippos. And you know what? Maybe that's maybe that's better than the water hyacinth, but that's the funny thing, is who can say? Well, and the 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 the, the joke, of course, is like in Florida, everything's trying to kill you, right? Like there's gators yeah. <laughs> and there's there's like swamp rattlesnakes and all this crazy stuff. And then we almost introduced what about a 5,800 pound? What about snake? the most dangerous mammal <laughs> on the planet? <laughs> An absolute bone crusher of a unit. Let's just put those in Florida, too. <laughs> right. Now for some footnotes. In what may be a first for the podcast, our topic today does not have its own Wikipedia page. Almost all of the information we discussed came from Wikipedia, but it had to be pieced together from the individual pages on Broussard, Water Hyacinth, the Hippopotamus, and so on. Maybe an intrepid listener will create the proprietary American Hippobill Wikipedia page. Next, what happened to Water Hyacinth in the South? Well, turns out it was undefeatable, and the invasive plant is now just a part of life in the South. A scientific study described hyacinth's victory in this way. Initial management of water hyacinth outside of its native range focused on eradication, but due to the difficulty of this approach, efforts have shifted towards reducing plant density levels that minimize economic and ecological impacts. One main reason that eradication is no longer thought to be feasible is due to the discovery that seeds of water hyacinth have the ability to lie dormant for 15 to 20 years during drought periods and to begin to germinate and renew their growth cycle once reflooding occurs. This means that the direct removal of the plant would not guarantee that new populations wouldn't return in the future from undetected seeds that were left. Yikes. Finally, a word about manatees. In Florida, wildlife managers have come up with a solution to clean up the water of manatee habitats that suffer from deadly algae blooms. Authorities have purposely introduced water hyacinth. The hyacinth kills the algae, and the manatees eat the hyacinth, keeping it in check. Although water hyacinth may not be the food of first choice for the manatees. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And we will talk at you next week.